This is a Giving Thought podcast from the Charities Aid Foundation's think tank, Giving Thought. Hi, and once again, uh, you join us for the Giving Thought podcast, uh, which is the podcast of the Charities Aid Foundation's in-house think tank, Giving Thought. And uh, yeah, this is episode nine, Rod. Uh, it's, they grow up so quick, don't they? Um, yeah, we're almost double figures now. It's uh, yeah, exciting times. Frightening. Um, so yeah, <laughs> you're joined by me, Adam, and uh, my colleague, Rod. Um, Hello. Hey. Um, this week, we're going to be uh, tackling the rather broad subject of uh, psychology, the psychology of giving. Uh, this is a uh, another idea that was put forward to us uh, on Twitter um, for a podcast. So, yeah, thanks for that. Uh, keep the engagement up. Um, and without further ado, Rod, uh, I think we're starting off by discussing um, social status. Yeah, absolutely, Adam. And I suppose it's worth saying just before we start that we are by no means going to cover all of the possible angles on the psychology of uh, giving or philanthropy. Um, and we're well aware of that. And hopefully we'll get to come back to quite a lot of them uh, at other times. But you've, you've got to cut your cloth somehow. So, um, so yeah, we're starting off looking at the the idea of um, social status. I suppose this the, the starting point for this is the, you know, the idea that um, the, the theory, basically, that one of the things that drives philanthropy is the desire on the part of the donor to get, you know, what's called by economists in their slightly cynical way, a, a warm glow. So it's that kind of personal reward, whether that's um, not really so much tangible in the form of, you know, like money or anything like that, but just the the feeling um, of uh, well-being that comes from having done a good act. Um, now, that's a kind of economic construct, but there's also sort of evidence from neuroscience and psychology that it's a real thing because uh, you look at people's brains when they give to charity and it elicits the same sort of reaction as uh, uh, things like taking uh, recreational drugs or eating chocolate uh, or other enjoyable things like that. If you could do that whilst giving to charity, it would be a real thing. I think that would, yeah, it's possible there'd be some sort of overload there. Uh, <laughs> I, would, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't want to speculate on whether people had done that, so maybe we'll... we'll get away from that topic um but yeah uh so but but you know what it actually is that drives that mechanism is still kind of an open question and, and one of the you know oft put forward explanations is that actually um it's to do with social signaling and that kind of the thing that makes you feel good about giving is a sort of belief that it improves um your uh profile in the eyes of others it kind of makes people think better of you um uh, and I think, you know, this this kind of at a much wider uh, level is something that has run very much as a seam through kind of the history of philanthropy. Mm. Um, I mean, there's a sort of cynical stereotype of the, the kind of philanthropist as social climber, um, uh, which, you know, there's some truth to certainly here in the UK where we have a very long standing and quite entrenched class system. Um when there were periods when kind of new wealth was created in the Industrial Revolution, for instance, it, it was still the case that some of the richest people uh, in the country at the time, the industrialists, were still looked down on by those who were the kind of landed ar- aristocracy. But the the, the sort of the Johnny-come-lately uh, people who'd made their wealth through filthy things like, you know, uh, creating industry or kind of milling cotton and those sorts of things, 
um, use their giving as a way of trying to enhance their social status in the eyes of their peers and in the eyes of the general populace. Um, and that's definitely, you know, a very strong thread in the history of US philanthropy, where, you know, they, they didn't even have uh, a kind of class system uh, as an alternative ladder to climb up society. So pretty much the only way that that you could kind of move uh, up the social strata was by making money, but then that had to be accompanied by doing good for others. So kind of overt acts of philanthropy have been part of the story of kind of wealth and social status in the US since the year dot, basically. Yeah, I guess we had to start by flagging social status up in any discussion about um, psychology, because any study weighs so heavily on the notion of sort of reciprocity, that age old question of, is it possible to give uh, without receiving anything return well no because you get the warm glow or because mm. you'll get some sense of reciprocity even if it's just the sense of well-being for having given but it might also be some increase in social status it might be a way of of using that giving to do some social signaling and that may not even be aspirational signaling that may be because you kind of you know you want to be uh, friends with someone else who's giving to the same cause like there's lots of different elements to it but it, it can't be ignored can it no, no, absolutely not. I think it, you know, uh, there is a, a lot of evidence that um, there are kind of perceptions of how others view us are pretty important in a lot of contexts, and uh, philanthropy is is very much one of those contexts. I suppose the, the other thing about social status is that it's kind of a driver for philanthropy in one sense, in that you know the use of philanthropy as a tool to to kind of improve your own social status is one side of it, but it also cuts the other way. So there's you know, uh, probably less psychological and more to do with kind of social um, science, uh, a question about whether uh, your your improvement in social status carries with it kind of enhanced expectations of uh, the, the amount of giving that you'll do. So you know, that's another longstanding question is what are the kind of responsibilities that, that come with wealth? Um, and, you know, a lot of ink and paper has been expended uh, on that question in the past as well. Yeah. And not not just academic conjecture. A lot of it's been in the press, and you know, at some yeah. point we'll do a, a podcast about kind of celebrity philanthropy because it's it's worth picking up. But it seems to be even more so as the years go on. Uh, the 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 rich and famous are outed for their philanthropy, uh, criticised for how they give or for not giving, how much they give. You know, it's um, it's it kind of the. The higher your social status is, the more public the discourse about your philanthropy is, and so as a as a result, there seems to be an if anything increasing sense of uh, duty to give. Yeah, I think that's right, and it's sort of it's occasionally at odds with the idea, you know, the idea that's been prevalent culturally at times that you know philanthropy is a sort of private act, either to do with uh, kind of you know religious obligation or just that people were more private about wealth and that sort of thing. But I think the, the interesting thing when it comes to this question of social status is that it's always been a big issue at the top level of philanthropy mm. where you know, people are giving millions and millions. But actually, it's something that we're starting to very much see much more become much more obvious um, further down the scale as a result of people living their lives much more kind of openly and transparently through things like social media. So yeah. actually, there's there's some sort of fascinating questions about 
the the extent to which the visibility of of your own peer group um, or at least the visibility of what they're showing you through through social media which may not be anywhere near the reality you know what, what yeah what that means in terms of giving if people are you know telling you all about what they're giving to charity does that yeah. then drive you to do more exactly and and it raises lots of potential kind of unintended consequences which uh some may be good some may be bad it may be that this drives up giving because more and more people feel like they're accountable to their give for their giving online um it may be that it actually what it encourages is sort of clicktivism where people signal that they're doing the giving without actually doing the giving which you know we've seen a lot of in uh in kind of recent social media uh fundraising campaigns but then there are even wider questions about whether explaining to somebody that they have a duty to do something is necessarily going to get the best results because mm. you know for instance people have a duty to pay tax and that is not a particularly compelling uh, or or kind of emotive thing to be told that you have a duty to but essentially you're paying for public services many of them for the vulnerable sounds a lot like charity but the fact that you are told you have a duty to do it breaks that sense of warm glow uh, and hence you could probably have a lot more incentive to try and uh, minimize your tax burden and you know do we want to create a scenario that looks like that in in philanthropy okay then rod so proximity effect um this is the idea that the uh, the extent to which you're exposed to um, to a cause or to need can affect the way in which you give to it. Um, quite an interesting um, psychological finding in philanthropy. Do you want to uh, give us a bit of a uh, introduction to it? Yeah, so I mean, it's essentially, you say, Adam, it's basically the the kind of slightly more formalised version of uh, the old adage that seeing is believing, which is definitely one of those things that you hear said in the world of philanthropy very often, but it, it turns out to be pretty true. So Actually, there's quite a lot of evidence that, um, you know, if people come into contact with the overt signs of a particular cause, either just through, you know, contact with people uh, who are less fortunate themselves or, you know, um, seeing a kind of social situation uh, in reality, that makes them more likely to give. Um, and the converse is true. So there's kind of evidence uh, from the US that people who live in less economically diverse neighborhoods. Um, wealthy people, that is, who live in those those neighbourhoods, give less to charity overall. Whereas mm. wealthy people who live in more uh, economically diverse neighbourhoods are um, more likely to give. And some sort of subsequent work linked to that has kind of identified the fact that it is this proximity effect that seems to be the the mechanism. Because if you take people from those less economically diverse um, neighbourhoods you can reverse the effect totally by just showing them a short video about poverty. Um, so basically what it is, is like if you live in a more uh, economically diverse um, neighborhood, chances are you've just seen people from kind of different walks of life to you. So you're more aware of it. You can't, uh, you can't really kind of ignore it. Whereas if you live basically in a nice gated community and everything's lovely, you, it's quite easy, if even if you're very well-meaning, to sort of fall into the trap of assuming that everybody is broadly like you and that everything's dandy, and you know yeah. that then reduces the kind of compunction or motivation to give. Well, I suppose, and when you're together with the same peer group, you're likely to kind of uh, reinforce each other's existing biases and make them even stronger, and and kind of feel uh, like you're part of a kind of right-minded group. Whereas if you're 
if you are the the wealthy outlier uh, in a neighbourhood, you're likely to sort of perceive the need and your own you, your own fortunate situation, and we should do something about it. Yeah, I think that's that's right, and I think you know one of the things that, um, that I think is interesting, and it goes to a lot of the work we've been doing about kind of the impact of future technologies and things, is that when you take this proximity effect into account, there are there's a significant danger that, that some of these new technologies are going to cut into it quite badly. So you know we've already heard about the dangers of kind of social media filter bubbles and echo chambers, and people basically spending more and more time with others who are like themselves. Um, and, you know, I think we've said before, maybe on this podcast and certainly in some of our work, that other technologies linked to that, like augmented or virtual reality, that, that kind of set up even more barriers between your perception of the world and the kind of wider reality and kind of guide that reality. And, you know, so AI algorithms as well that sort of present choices for you based on your preferences and, and previous choices. All of those things might well make it less likely that you're going to come into contact with some of those sort of awkward situations that often are the sort of necessary starting point for somebody yeah. taking action to, to to give to charity. Absolutely. You know, it, it raises um, difficult questions about the, the, the future effectiveness uh, of, of giving if we are not able to objectively uh, target the areas of greatest greatest need if we're kind of psychologically unable to admit that to ourselves and yeah i mean there's certainly evidence to suggest that the more we're able to distance ourselves and see uh, a group of people as other other and different that can really affect our generosity and and that brings us quite nicely onto the next section which is on victim blaming yeah it does indeed Right, yeah, we're back again for the third and final section. Uh, and as Adam said before the break, in this one, we're going to talk about the phenomenon of victim blaming, which is a you know slightly controversial phraseology, but one that is well established um, within kind of psychological literature. So we're comfortable using it. But maybe Adam, you could start by kind of explaining what this phenomenon is. Yeah, victim blaming is, is quite a harsh term to use, but I think it's one that we're just going to have to have to accept because the evidence uh, backs up such a strong claim. Um, looking at some of the research that that we've done and research that others have done, it is clear that we're not particularly good at judging where the where the greatest need is, and where we're kind of biased uh, and lack objectivity when it comes to figuring out who is to blame, and and that's interesting in itself because. In, there are instances where nobody's to blame, but we, if we feel that somebody is to blame, it massively changes the uh, the kind of level of generosity um, and our kind of emotional connection to to a cause. So, for example, the um, we just need to look at the differing levels of generosity for different disasters. Um, so, take the tsunami in two thousand and four. The average uh, amount donated per casualty was about one thousand four hundred pounds. Uh, this is data from the Disasters Emergency Committee, so that's donations made in the UK. Um, in to the, the in Haiti, um, it was about six hundred sixty nine pounds. Uh, in the Syria appeal, it was just two hundred seventy pounds per casualty. Now you can see Syria is the outlier there uh, in a major way. Um, and what seems to be different about Syria is that it was a 
uh, a conflict. It was a human-caused um, uh, calamity, uh, and people just seem less generous when it comes to that. And in fact, we have done, and others have done research that demonstrates this to be true. So um, if we look at our own survey, so CAF does surveys after each um, disaster appeal uh, to, to kind of gauge how people donated, how much they donated, and what some of their perceptions were about it. Um, and we actually asked people questions about what scenarios and what kinds of disasters they would be more or less likely to donate in. And it found some interesting, if to be honest, a little bit depressing results, which is that people were you know, willing to admit that they were more likely to, to give to natural disasters than they were to... Uh, I suppose it, well, it, was, it was defined in the questions as human-caused disasters, significantly more likely to give. And actually that becomes even stronger with age. Um, for some reason, the older you are, the more likely you are to be kind of cynical about human-caused disasters. Now, I suppose your kind of your instinct is to think, well, human-caused disasters, that's, you know, that's somebody is to blame there, therefore I feel less likely to give. But that's not that's essentially blaming the victims um, because, you know, it, it's got, may have nothing to do with the individuals, but just the sense of a human being to blame for it makes people less generous. So other research, research by the European Journal of uh, Social Psychology in 2010, did this really interesting uh, piece of research where they they took two sample groups and they gave them some money and asked them how much they'd be willing to donate to a hypothetical um, natural disaster or, yeah, well, yeah, natural disaster. Um, but they just made a subtle tweak for one of the groups to the text that they read about the disaster. So the disaster was a flood uh, in a developing country um, with exact, everything was exactly the same, the same weather event leading up to it, the same uh, traumatic incident for the victims the only difference was in one of the samples, they told them that a dam had failed. Um, and just the, introduce, the, just the introduction of uh, something human into that kind of, as a causal factor, radically changed the amount that people were willing to give. Just, yeah. sh- just showing the, how, how powerful this effect of victim blaming is. Yeah, and do you think? I mean, as a sort of underlying explanation for that, obviously the term victim blaming makes it sound like what we're doing is all sitting there, kind of consciously saying, "Oh, these people are, you know, the the authors of their own destruction." Do you think? Do you think there's something that it's kind of more difficult to for for us to empathise in cases where um, we don't we we find it impossible to picture ourselves in the same scenario. So whereas we can all sort of see ourselves as the unfortunate and blameless victims of a natural disaster, like you know a, a flood or an earthquake, yep. even if it's unlikely here in the UK, because we think it's so unlikely that we're going to be the victims of kind of vicious civil war, um, it's just very difficult to to kind of get the empathy required to put ourselves in those people's situation. That's definitely something that's. Uh, written about in the research um you know it's easier if you can well so for example in the um indian ocean tsunami there were pictures all over the front page of western holidaymakers yeah rather than locals well, because it was and a yeah, and yeah a film with ewan mcgregor and exactly exactly so. um so yeah people give to you know if they see kids that look a bit like their kids it yeah. makes them you know it, 
right or wrong, well, I'd suggest wrong. It makes them feel more likely to donate. But there is there are other elements to it, I think. Um, you know, some of them pretty, I suppose, worrying and anachronistic. So the researchers kind of had this uh, suggestion that people will see, because there, there are uh, humanitarian disasters where people become incredibly motivated to give in poor countries where the where people it's very hard to see themselves in those communities but often it's when they're able to have this very simple narrative of the kind of uh the innocent savage yeah. uh and they cast themselves as the kind of um noble wealthy westerner coming to <laughs> <laughs> save the yeah, situation and that simple narrative is much easier than the complexity of um a, the kind of maelstrom of forces that are at play in a in a conflict zone yeah and i suppose there's you know we hear a lot about kind of negative stereotypes uh around kind of aid in developing countries but actually if the psychology of it means there's a perverse incentive to perpetuate those stereotypes because the introduction of nuance means that yeah. people are less likely to give that's unfortunate isn't it well and and you know there have been examples so the most prominent one that's cited is uh, oxfam's example from a few years ago of really trying to portray aid in a much more positive way and instead of showing uh overly emotive pictures of kind of starving uh children they will show pictures of people thriving and and sell the idea that aid works and it's positive and that you know this is the outcome and the reality is that's, that complicates the story and people become less generous. Yeah. I just, just want to link this as well because I think there's an interesting link between this kind of idea of victim blaming in an international development context and a kind of wider question about uh, the way in which philanthropy has been used to address poverty because there's a, a very sort of long-running debate or controversy over the sort of the distinction between the deserving and undeserving poor that, you know, we still hear today. But I yeah. was like... It's the same sort of thing, actually, like the the, theor- the theoretical underpinnings or the kind of ide- ideology that you approach the question with when you come to try and address poverty through philanthropy has a pretty big bearing. So, mm. for instance, you know, some people see poverty as a kind of result of systemic failing that, that people are the victims of and they therefore need to be helped. And that kind of lends to itself to one approach, which tends to be trying to kind of address causal yeah. Um, underlying kind of causal factors but then there is another thread which um, is a kind of more moralistic one often it has to be said in the past tied up with sort of religious teaching which is that you know uh, poverty is part of god's plan so there will always be sort of poor people and rich people but actually the reason that those those people are poor is because they somehow are being they're being made they're being held to account for their own moral failings and it's only a kind of lack of moral fortitude that is keeping them there and so what they need is tough love uh, and you know to be kind of treated like errant children so you get this much more kind of paternalistic approach um yeah and again you can sort of see that the the way in which you view the people who are essentially the victims of the problem of poverty has a very big bearing on what you think is the best way of addressing it. Yeah, it's all about the psychological frame, isn't it? And and uh, and and it's political. So, mm, like, absolutely. Uh, in Canada, they had a really interesting example of this uh, under the last administration. Has to be said um, that I think that the CRA rejected um, the the kind of 
purpose that um, was put forward. I think that was by Oxfam. I'd have to check that. But they uh, wouldn't allow the eradication of poverty to be a purpose. They would allow the reduction of poverty, but not the eradication because they thought that was questioning the kind of, uh, that was a kind of, they were questioning the precepts of capitalism that there will be, there have to be losers to be winners and that you just need to kind of ameliorate the effects of it rather than eradicate it. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? The, the kind of formalization. <laughs> you could, yeah, yeah you, could, you could address poverty enough, but not too much. So. <laughs> yeah. Okay, well, I think that's uh, about all we've got for for this week. Which, to be fair, I think seems like plenty. We've crammed a lot in there, but um, yeah, yeah. It just remains to say uh, thanks again for you know the people who came up with the uh, suggestions that were the basis for taking this topic um if anybody else has some suggestions for things they think we should cover or just you know want to get in touch more broadly uh drop us a line at giving thought at cafonline.org um check out the blog at um giving thought.org uh and uh we'll as ever put links to relevant uh bits of work uh publications um blogs that kind of thing in the show notes other than that it just remains to say thanks for listening and we'll see you next time hey bye bye